morning when we were getting set to record this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast, I had like a witty and entertaining and fun intro, and I don't remember what it was. So, hello. <laughs> witty, uh, as always. Hi to all of you. <laughs> yeah. As always, just crackerjack work at the start of this podcast, as you have come to expect for uh, nearly six seasons now of the show before the show from MILB.com. Hi, everyone. I am Tyler Mon. Sam Dykstra is in New York City. Hello, Sam. Hello, Tyler. You are in uh, the is it Grand Forks, North Dakota. <laughs> yes, I yeah. am. Uh, if you could draw up New York and then draw up the opposite of New York, that's where I travel for uh, one of my other jobs. Uh, and currently, yeah, Grand Forks, North Dakota. Um, it's uh, I don't I shudder to even look at my phone and see what the temperature is outside, but it is not good. We'll put it that way. Like I look outside and it just makes me cold. Uh, and I have been indoors all day, so eh, you know that's it's kind of it's kind of where we are with uh, it. The weather situation where I am. Luckily, basketball is an indoor sport, so you're okay there as well. Goodness, because, uh, yeah. That's one thing, you know, our our head coach said to me yesterday, oh, it's 23 out there right now. It's not, you know, it's not as bad. Oh, but it feels like 12. Um, Our head coach said to me yesterday, we were getting uh, ready to go to dinner, and he goes, you don't have a coat on? And I was like, no, like, we're we're rarely outside. Literally, you're only outside walking from the hotel to the bus, and the bus to another building and then back to the bus and back to the hotel like you don't spend any time outdoors here but i still probably should have brought a coat because it's uh it's gross um how old are you have you uh, you not learned this so far 13 (laughs) still a lesson still a lesson i'm working on Um, but hey we welcome you into this week's episode of the show before the show from milv.com uh lewis boyd the manager of the everett aqua Sox, will be joining the show coming up in a little bit he was a draft selection in 2017 and he is now the manager for uh class a short season everett so we're going to talk about that uh this is my favorite line in any email that sam has ever sent with show prep and he said with lewis boyd quote we'll talk about being youthful and what that's like (laughs) (laughs) speaking of how old are you not something i remember at all at this at this stage it was just somebody who was like okay we're going to be talking to lewis boyd he's in a management position quite literally now and and you know what it's like to make that move very quickly and then i looked at his middle player page because it's still up because he he played in the minors as recently as 2018 uh and i looked at his age and i was like oh he's 25 that's uh, oh wait that's that's (laughs) that's now much younger than i am that's not no longer like oh hey like we're still in the same age bracket it's kind of i'm i'm months uh within 30 now and oh, yeah talking rough, to a 25 year old i'm just like oh we were never we would have never been in the same school together must be rough so, to be months yeah. away from 30 that sounds brutal yeah uh, it is we're all sad for you mm-hmm. um so it's <laughs> coming up uh in just a little bit and uh we're gonna catch up with benjamin hill talk about logos uh the new nine looks for 2020 which you can vote on your favorite by the way, at MILB.com. And uh, in that vein, just announced last year, more than 20 new minor league teams will join the Copa de la Diversión chase in 2020. MILB's Hispanic Fan Engagement Initiative, fresh off its second full season, celebrates the cultural contributions of Hispanic communities across over 90 minor league cities. Through culturally significant on-field identities, in-stadium accommodations and entertainment options, and community impact, Copa celebrates a Hispanic community whose love for baseball has driven the game forward. Visit MILB.com slash fans slash Copa or follow Minor League Baseball on social media at MILB to find out more about 
about each identity and the initiative. And with that, we'll dive into three strikes when we talk about the three top topics in all of minor league baseball. And uh, obviously, it is a big time week. Two new inductees to the Professional Baseball Hall of Fame, the National Baseball Hall of Fame, as it is officially known. Uh, and it's uh, a really cool class that's going in. Derek Jeter, who fell one vote shy of being a unanimous selection. I'm not sure if anyone has heard that. It's been a very below-the-radar topic that's been brought up about Derek Jeter's uh, induction into the Hall of Fame. Uh, and former... St. Louis Cardinals slash Colorado Rockies slash Montreal Expo. Larry Walker also headed into the Hall of Fame. The best description conceivable about this class was Larry Walker saying, remember on those old records, those old 45s, you used to get the A side and that was the song that everybody wanted. And then the B side was like a song you hadn't heard about. I'm the B side in this election. (laughs) Um, And uh, Walker and Jeter get to go in together in 2020. We got a story up on the site right now uh, about their time in the minor leagues. This is a cool class in just being these two guys for strike one yeah no and you know we're going to look at this from the minor league perspective almost exclusively here but uh it really is an interesting dichotomy in terms of the bbwaa vote uh the two guys got in through that marvin miller and ted simmons also got in this year so it'll be a fun class of four guys going in uh various backgrounds various ways of doing that but uh you know you look at Derek jeter like tyler mentioned getting in on that first ballot everybody assumed that that was going to happen uh it really was a question of whether it was going to be unanimous he got as close as one can possibly get without that actually happening larry walker had to wait until his final year of eligibility on the bbwaa vote and it really goes back to how these guys entered baseball almost. Um, Derek Jeter was a sixth overall pick in the 1992 draft. Larry Walker, you know, started his career so long ago, and I, I don't mean that to, you know, bring him down or make Sam him look old. To make but, himself feel young again. Yeah, a 25-year-old man uh, on today. When, when he signed with the Expos in 1984, uh, Canadians weren't eligible for the draft. They had to sign as international free agents the same way guys from the Dominican or guys from Mexico or you know anywhere else in the world had to sign. They weren't eligible for the draft until 1991. So Larry Walker, uh, you know, product of, of British Columbia uh, and you know proud Canadian that he is, had to sign for fifteen hundred dollars. Uh, so you got Derek Jeter getting first round money. You know, he, there's lots of talk that he was committed to go to the University of Michigan and that there were scouting reports saying he's not going to Michigan, he's going to Cooperstown. We know that's true now. Larry Walker basically was a hockey goalie, a failed hockey goalie. Uh, again, being the proud Canadian that he is, he always thought his future career was in hockey. Uh, turned out that that wasn't true. He had to go through baseball instead, signs with the Expos, Canada's team. Uh, one of two Canadian teams at the time between Toronto and Montreal, and uh, work his way through that system. Very small signing bonus. He had a quote that you know he didn't know what a forkball or a slider even was uh, when he first signed. He was just a guy with some decent athleticism and, and a decent swing that the Expos saw something that maybe they could work with. Um, but both of these guys, despite having those very divergent paths into pro ball, still had their struggles. I mean, Derek Jeter committed, committed 56 errors uh, when he was in the Sally League with Class A Greensboro. Larry Walker told this really funny story on MLB Network about the time where uh, it's one of the base-running blunders for, for the ages in which uh, you know he was across the diamond, he was on the base pass, realized he 
didn't or didn't think he had to tag back up at second base and just ran across the field to first uh, and then looked at everybody funny when it, they were like, what are you doing? He's like, I didn't know that this was something I had to learn. Um, so, you know, er, with a lot of prospects now, we talk about learning the game. And obviously the game is different now because a lot of these guys are playing year round and they're playing in different tournaments. And uh, it's different from saying like, oh, I've never seen a slider before that happened to Larry Walker. But still, the whole point of the minor leagues is to build a professional career. This is the place to take your lumps. Uh, you know, Derek Jeter committed all those errors with Greensboro. People still saw him as a really good prospect because they knew he needed to learn. They knew he needed to make those errors to become what was eventually a gold glove shortstop. Now, we can talk about the analytics and maybe he shouldn't have won all those gold gloves. We could put that off to the side. Um, but because of, you know, the learning methods that he had to go through the lower rungs of the Yankee system. That's what helped build him into one of the all-time great shortstops. Larry Walker is a similar thing. We think of him now as maybe one of the best base runners for a guy his size. Uh, you know, We don't necessarily think of him as a plus runner, but a guy was always seeming to, to go first to third or second to home and um, make all those really good base running maneuvers. Uh, he wasn't always like that. That was not something that he just got, you know, coming out of Maple Ridge, British Columbia. Uh, that's something he had to learn through the Meyer League. So uh, check out Kelsey Hennigan's story. She wrote it from the press conference, uh, got a couple good anecdotes from Jeter and Walker uh, who were pretty open in talking about their Meyer League struggles and how that built Hall of Fame careers. But uh, yeah, Tyler, especially for you, somebody who grew up watching Larry Walker uh would you say he was your favorite player growing up oh yeah yeah um he's he's my favorite player of all time and it's so cool to see his career be recognized because he was so underappreciated I think during uh his playing days by people on a national level the thing that's so fascinating is talking to players who played with Larry Walker I know Todd Helton had a, a quote yesterday that he put out um in congratulating Walker in which he said and this is a sentiment shared by countless players who Larry Walker played with they say Larry Walker was the best baseball player they ever shared a field with um and it is pretty amazing that this is a guy who like baseball really didn't come into his life until he was like 17 and then he made the hall of fame he confirmed on MLB Network, a story that was true, uh, which is in uh, Kelsey's story as well, in that uh, during his first season in Utica in uh, in the New York Penn League, he ran around second base, uh, ball was caught in the outfield, and he just sprinted back across the infield to, to head to first, as we noted, uh, and uh, confirmed that that was true. I mean, this is a guy who was a professional baseball player not understanding the rules of baseball. Like, that's how good he was just on sheer talent uh, and instinctive ability alone. Uh, maybe not the instinctive ability part that time with uh, not touching the base. Um, but it's it's pretty amazing to see that type of career trajectory land a guy in Cooperstown. And, uh, yeah, I've already booked uh, booked an Airbnb for that weekend. So uh, I've only been to Cooperstown once. I think I was uh, 12, I want to say. I believe it was uh, it was the year that Nellie Fox got in. I remember that. We were there, like, the weekend before Hall of Fame weekend. And uh, I've not been back since. And I've always said that if I was going to make a trip to Cooperstown for a Hall of Fame weekend, it would be when Larry Walker was inducted. So uh, that's the plan for uh, for late July of 2020. So congratulations to him. Congratulations, of course, to Derek Jeter as well. Um, there was another point made on MLB Network that I thought was cool, which Joel Sherman said, 
you know, we don't want to uh, make this day be about the fact that Derek Jeter came up one vote shy of being a unanimous selection. Derek Jeter got in with 396 votes of 397 or 397 to 398, whatever it was. And Larry Walker got in six votes over what he needed to break 75%. That's the same qualification. They are now in the same class. That's the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I thought that was really cool. Um, so congratulations to those two guys. Strike two. We are uh, inside of now two and a half-ish weeks until – pitchers and catchers have their first uh report days and workouts for spring training in the cactus league and the grapefruit league in 2020 and we've got a whole bunch of spring invitations for top prospects across the game sam what stands out to you as being most exciting among the the invites so far yeah we are right in the thick of nri season as i call it uh it seems like the last couple days it's been three or four teams almost a day uh announcing non-roster invitations if that's a foreign concept to you, basically what happens is Major League Camp can basically be as, as big as you want. It's almost as many guys as you can fit in the locker room at your spring training complex. Uh, there's obviously the 40-man roster. Uh, Non-roster invitees are guys not on the 40-man uh, who can come in, compete for a Major League spot. Sometimes it's young guys who the Major League team just wants to get a look at, you know, up close, away from the backfields, or be around the major leaders. Learn something. Pick something up about routines. You'll hear a lot about routines when we talk to guys about what your experience is like in, in spring training. You know, see what it's like to see Albert Pujols uh, get ready for a spring training game or how early he gets to the ballpark or something – akin to that um so non-roster invites we've written a lot of these stories the last couple days i'll I'll just highlight a couple ones that have stood out to me uh one one that i thought was really interesting is julio rodriguez in the uh, seattle mariners system julio rodriguez had a really strong season last year we talk a, a lot about him and jared kelnick as basically a pair and you know you could say they're the two most interesting outfielders in the same system uh in all of baseball uh you could say they're the two most interesting position players in the same system in baseball and we can parse hairs on that later but uh what the mariners have in kelnick and rodriguez are two incredibly toolsy outfielders uh guys who have good arms in the outfield uh with rodriguez a lot of power a good offensive hit tool what makes him stand out to me a little bit more than kelnick is that he's only 19 he played all last year at age 18, he turned 19 in December. Uh, they skipped him right over from the DSL straight state side. Uh, he split last last year between Class A West Virginia and Class A Advanced Modesto. He got a little bit of time in the AFL because he missed time uh, with a wrist injury. And to put him immediately in major league camp like this, you know, let's not get it wrong – He's not there to compete for a major league job. We put him in that group of guys just trying to be around the major league team, see what they can pick up. Um, But to have that trust in him already at 19 and preparing him for maybe a season where he goes back to Modesto because he only had 17 games there shows that the Mariners know what they have in him. He's a guy who can continue to climb quickly. Uh, he's got the bat for it. Once he gets the health, once he puts you know those injuries behind him a little bit, he can continue to move quick. Kelnick played for three affiliates last year. Would not be 
surprised at all if we see Rodriguez maybe at as high as AAA for a cup of coffee at the end of 2020. Um, but to start out his year this way should be interesting. And I'll be keeping a close eye on how much actual playing time will he get in the Cactus League. Uh, is this just somebody to have around to you know hit in the seventh and eighth innings, or are they actually going to get him a lot of playing time and try to get him ready for the season that way? Is he going to stick around for a while, or is he a quick cut? We'll have to see. But the fact that he's already getting uh, a non-roster invite at 19 uh, is especially interesting for for me. Two guys to also point out who are a little bit older, actually probably much older uh, in this case, is Forrest Whitley with the Astros. Uh, at this point last year, we were talking about Whitley impacting the Astros major league roster in 2019. We all thought that was going to happen. Most of you probably know what followed. He had a really difficult 2019 season, really struggled out of the gate at AAA Round Rock, uh, had an ERA north of 12, uh, then dealt with shoulder injuries and was basically rehabbing his way back. Finished out the year strong in the AFL where he led the league in strikeouts. Um, But he's still somebody whose prospect status is very much up in the air. What do we see as the real Forrest Whitley? Because his arsenal is one of the best in minor league baseball. He's got four-plus pitches. Uh, it's the control and the command that we have to worry about. If he's not hitting his spots with those pitches with good movement, then none of this works. Um, so he's c- entering camp you know, on the upswing after that AFL, uh, but can he keep that going? Where where does he stand now? Is the command still an issue, or does he – has he ironed out some some of that problems? Because they would still love to see him as a starter in Houston by the first half. Uh, you know, especially Garrett Cole's out, out of the way now. Uh, you know, Zach Renke is in, but they would love to add another high ceiling arm. Whitley can be that. It's just his floor is a little bit lower than what we thought at this same point last year. And one more, I'll point out Nick Madrigal, who we're about to talk about in the next segment as well. Uh, the White Sox are all in on 2020. They've made a lot of interesting signings. They've made a lot of interesting trades. They brought in Nomar Mazzara. They've re-signed Jose Abreu. They've signed Luis Robert to a contract extension before he's played a major league game. They've also brought in Enwin Encarnacion, Yasmani Grandal. The list goes on and on. It's very clear that they think they can compete in the AL Central. Nick Madrigal, as things stand right now, is probably their best second baseman um, after just one full season in the minor leagues he should get a lot of looks this spring what does he do with those looks can he show off that really really good hit tool and that really good contact ability and does he put himself in a place like Pete Alonso, Chris Paddock and Fernando Tatis Jr. last year where the major league team decided hey listen we want to go for it this year we want all of our best talent up from day one no we don't care about contract status right now uh I would say he's their best second base option over somebody like Lurie Garcia. Um, But can he do enough in the spring to really force the White Sox hand? Because if he hits, you know, 220 through 15 games, then it becomes a lot easier to send him back down to Charlotte, say he has stuff to work on. If he hits 350, doesn't strike out at all, is the Nick Madrigal we all know, uh, then that conversation for Rick Hahn and the White Sox front office becomes a lot more difficult. So those are three I'm keeping an eye out for now. A lot of more non-roster invites are going to roll in the coming weeks, uh, and I'm sure we'll be talking about them a little bit more as we get closer to spring training. But uh, for right now, those are three that I'm keeping a close eye on once the grapefruit and cactus leagues start up here uh, in the middle of February. And strike three this week. Prospect projections continue. Uh, You just heard some discussion about the Chicago White Sox. They were one of the teams uh, included in the American League Central evaluations from Sam. 
Yeah. So again, this is a, a series we've been doing the last three weeks. AL Central is next. That means we're halfway through. NL Central will be next week. This is based off Steamer 600, which gives 600 plate appearances to position players, 450 to catchers, uh, 200 to starting, 200 innings to starting pitchers, and 65 innings uh, to relievers. It puts everybody basically on an even keel. It, it helps us to evaluate how they would do over a full season. So that's good for somebody like Nick Madrigal instead of trying to play a, a playing time game here. Uh, we can just see what he would do over 600 plate appearances. The main crux of this story was obviously going to be Luis Robert. Uh, he enters 2020 as one of the top five prospects in baseball. MLB.com will be updating its top 100 this weekend. Tune in for that. I think that's Saturday at 3 p.m. We'll be talking about that more next week as they update their top 100 overall rankings. But you can pretty much guarantee that Luis Robert is going to be in that top five discussion. Uh, he was our top offensive player Milby winner last year. He was one of two 30-30 players in the minor leagues. It was him and Kyle Tucker. Um uh, there was a great argument for him making Chicago by the end of 2019. That obviously didn't happen. He signs a six-year, $50 million deal to basically establish him as a major leaguer from day one uh, on the south side. So it, how is he going to be now that we know he's all but a major leaguer at this point? Uh, Steamer is a big fan. That shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Uh, but what I found interesting about this, we mentioned that he was a 30-30 player last year in the minor leagues. Steamer believes he could be a 2020 player in the majors as a rookie. Now, that sounds a little bit less. You go from a 30-30 to a 2020. But this is the full list of guys that Steamer believes could be 2020 players in 2020. That's Christian Yelich, Jose Ramirez, Ronald Acuna Jr., Byron Buxton, Fernando Tatis Jr., Bo Bichette, Starling Marte, Kyle Tucker, and Luis Robert. That is a fantastic list to be on, uh, and he fits in quite nicely in that list as well. Uh, Steamer projects him to be worth 3.0 war wins above replacement over 600 plate appearances. That's right around the same mark as Starling Marte, and it, for anybody who's been following the offseason, there's a potential for the Pirates to maybe trade for Starling Marte. A lot of teams saying, hey, he would automatically upgrade our outfield. The White Sox have one of those guys already in the system. You put him in the middle next to Eloy Jimenez and Nomar Mazzara, that's an exciting outfield. Uh, so to have this already and, you know, listen, Robert's going to take his lumps. The strikeout uh, rate for him is a little bit worrisome in the minors. That's only going to be exacerbated in the majors. But if he can be this type of player already, uh, you know, over the course of that six-year contract, it, there's a decent chance he's going to pick up multiple all-star mentions. He's basically the favorite right now to be the AL Rookie of the Year. Sometimes that works out, sometimes that doesn't. Um, but you can see why the White Sox were willing to give him this much money. I think $50 million was the most guaranteed money for anybody who's never played in the majors before. When you have somebody who's going to be a 2020 player right away, that's when you try to lock them up as they did. There's also team options that, in that for for the the club as well uh, to make it a little bit more team friendly, um, but this is really exciting. If you're a Chicago fan and thought like, oh, Luis Robert, you know that's great, all he did in the minor leagues, but he's unproven. Um, you know we don't know what type of player he's going to be. We don't, but these projections point to a very very good player right away. And again, you look back at this list, the the stories on the site. Um, you know comparing him to Starling Marte already with. Other guys who are really interesting outfielders in Yelich, Acuna, and Buxton. Uh, that's a lot of reason for excitement in Chicago. 
And that is three strikes on this week's episode of the show. Before the show, coming up, we're headed to the Northwest League to talk with Lewis Boyd, the 25-year-old manager of the Everett Aqua Sox on this week's episode of the show. Joining us this week on the Minor League Baseball Podcast is Everett Aqua Sox manager, who's now going into his second year uh, as a skipper in the Northwest League, is Lewis Boyd. Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? You got it. Doing great. Really, really enjoy. Uh, really happy that you reached out. Enjoy yeah. to get this thing going. No, this is this is great. And uh, this is something a little bit different than what we normally do in the offseason. Normally we do a lot of player interviews in the offseason. But I wanted to bring in you bring you in this week uh, just because the Mariners announced their player development assignments and your story stood out a little bit for people who don't know at home. Lewis was a 24th round pick back in 2017, is already a manager in the, the Mariners system. Uh, kind of take us through these last 12 months because 12 months ago you were about to go into a coaching assignment, I think with Modesto. Then you move into a managing assignment. Now you're going back there. You're returning to Everett. What have these last 12 months been like for you? It's, it's been a complete whirlwind. My, uh, my world kind of got turned upside down, but in the best way possible. Um, just even getting the opportunity to, to be a player coach in Modesto was, was unbelievable. I was extremely grateful for it. Um, and having spending that time in Modesto with so many great players, great infielders who I was in charge of there, but, uh, the coaching staff that was there, I was able to learn so much from, and, uh, Luckily, Denny Hawking, who's the manager there, he was my manager in Loe the previous year. So we already had a pretty good connection going, and he, he played a big part in me getting the job in the first place. And just being able to continue to pick his brain throughout the year and, and picking brain of uh, Jose Umbria, who's the hitting coach, and Rob Marcello, the pitching coach, just the wealth of knowledge in that room was so beneficial for me from the first gig and out of nowhere that just kind of just fell fell into place and got the opportunity in Everett. And uh, it was an unbelievably perfect situation for me being from the Northwest. The first game I managed was in my hometown with family and friends in the stands and, and just the, the core group in, in the Mariners and the, the supporting cast that, that they surrounded me with was was unbelievable and, and something I'll, I'll always be super grateful for that I was able to start off on, on such a positive note and that's full credit to the people that were always around me. Mm. And let's jump back even a little further because you mentioned being a player coach in Modesto, working with the infielders exclusively. You were a shortstop, second baseman you know, during your time in Arizona and, and transitioning to the Mariner system. But at what point did Seattle come to you and say, hey, listen – this is the role we think you have carved out because, you know, just two and a half years ago, you were drafted. Uh, it's early in their career for them to, A, suggest that to you, but B, even identify that in you as, as being a future coach or even a present coach. What was that process like, even jumping into the coaching waters to begin with? So I think it was a process that kind of even began in when I was scouted by the Mariners. It was something that I brought up to them that, regardless of how long my playing career was uh, being a coach or working in the front office would be something that I'd be super interested in. And it was a way that I wasn't the most talented player in university, but it was able, I was able to maybe add a little more value to my, to my stock as a, as a person and not just a player. And uh, thankfully that 
that message kind of got passed along. And after my last pro season, I was, I called our field coordinator, Carson Vitale and, and let him know that I wasn't going to come back and play. And, uh, because I wanted to start pursuing a coaching gig. And if any opportunity came up that I would be more than, more than interested in accepting that. And thankfully something came up right before spring training. And, uh, they, I think they know, my passion for infielding, especially. Um, and as a fourth coach player coach, it was, it was something that they thought would, that I could naturally proceed in. And I had a lot of good relationships with the infielders that were going to be on the Modesto roster. And I think they saw that as a really, really big positive where I could, the connection would be immediate and the relationship was already ingrained into, into ourselves. And we were able to make a lot of, a lot of solid progress and, is something that just worked out really well for everybody. Mm. And I want to go back to something you mentioned in there. You say you have a real passion for infielding in particular. I don't feel like that's something our listeners hear much about. Is somebody with a big passion, not only on defense, but specifically infielding. What is it about that that you are passionate about? And you know, how does that kind of manifest itself? What do you find doing with infielders uh, that you take greatest joy in? Yeah, so... Infielding is basically what, what got me to, to the pros and even, even to the collegiate level. Um, it was something, for whatever reason, was ingrained into my mind and something that I felt like I could have a lot more control over in comparison to hitting and something you could be a little bit more of a perfectionist about um, since you're always shooting for that 1,000 fielding percentage. But uh, something that kind of took – took me to the next level I thought this year was our video coordinator and uh in Modesto Mark Roach he he approached me during spring training with a infield tracking system that was being implemented at BYU by Tucker Frawley and uh and I loved it I thought it'd be great it was something that I had never been a part of I'd never personally seen and I said let's go let's let's do it so we talked to our analytical department and uh we were able to put some together where we were tracking every ground ball that every infielder in Modesto uh, fielded throughout the year, where they fielded it, what type of hop it was, footwork type, and where they threw it. And based on those results, we were able to bring up monthly reports and uh, we attached video to every place so each guy could see exactly what they're doing right or wrong. And based on that, we were able to create daily um, development plans for each infielder based on their strengths and weaknesses. And that was something that uh, Bone, uh, our infield coordinator or our infield coach in the big leagues for the Mariners, he's unbelievable with the six F's of fielding. And um, it's something that I tried to recreate in the minor league level. And it was just a daily program. It's maybe a five, five minute thing, nice and quick, maybe 10 minutes, depending on the person and something that that individual could be really comfortable going into the game and not only be really comfortable, but without them necessarily knowing it slightly improving on a daily basis where when they look back at the end of the year, they can, they can look at themselves and, and feel a true progression in their infield defensive ability. Hmm. And so we talked there about your work as an infield or, or infield coach. How do you expand that out to managing where you are not only just working with uh, a couple of guys, a first baseman, third baseman, second baseman, shortstop, but everybody on the field. Uh, how quickly did you feel comfortable in a managerial role, and how did your skills kind of fan out to cover everybody in that dugout? 
So I think something that made me somewhat successful as a player was, was just my, my maybe ability to lead or just the care that I have for other people and, and just wanting to make them better whenever possible. And I think that other people feed off that. And so that's just where I really put my folks into. And, and thankfully I had a great, great coaching staff in, in Everett last year. And it wasn't something that I knew I would be a little foolish to try and just take on all by myself. But with the supporting cast that I had there, it was, it was something we really, really attacked as a team. And uh, on a daily basis, everyone's contributing in all different ways. And uh, we were really able to connect with our players and make sure that each guy individually was getting something that they needed. And in that way, when everyone's feeling great individually, then they were able to come together as a team. I think that's a great way to attack it. Mm. And, uh, you know, when I reached out to you to, to do this interview, you know, I was on your Twitter page. And one thing I wanted to point out, here at this stage is your pinned tweet was helping develop younger players might be the most rewarding thing in life. Hashtag perspective. Okay. I'm sure a lot of minor league coaches feel that way, but your tweet was sent in 2016 before you were drafted. You already had this mindset. Um, So, you know, talk about even taking on that role when you were in Arizona and uh, you know, at what point even in life did you feel like coaching was definitely the way forward for you? Yeah. So Whenever I'm home in the off season, which is when I was playing was pretty rare, I would always make sure that I went down and, and helped out in any way possible with my with my high school club team, the North Shore Twins. And it was uh I remember helping out with their practice and, and just giving guys a couple pointers here and there, whether it be something big or something small and and just seeing the the gratification for the player and not not just as a player, but as a person and seeing the smile on their face when something clicked for them and, and seeing the success that they would have based on that, like that, that feeling of gratification just burned inside of me. And, and I wanted more of that. And it, it started back in 2016. And uh, I actually was able to speak with the North Shore Twins last night at one of their practices at our uh, in, indoor facility here in North Van. And just being able to speak with them. And even if I made a a small impact in in one of the guys, that's, that's plenty for, for me. And and it feels completely worth it. And just being able to work with guys and, and help them out, whether it be as a player or a person, it's, it's something that, that I, I desire in my life. And it's something that this career has given me on a daily basis. And I love every second of it. Hmm. And going back to your now role as manager, um, being as young as you are, being only 25, uh, I know Everett's far down enough that uh, probably all the guys you, who were playing under you last year weren't your teammates in the M system, but you guys were in the same system just a couple months before that. Um, you know, What was it like getting the guys to buy in to having a guy who's in his mid-20s now be the manager when usually those roles are reserved for guys much older? Yeah, it was something that I honestly never – never really worried about too much just because I've always believed that if someone is, is genuinely themselves on a daily basis and, and comes with a, a good attitude and is consistent on a daily basis that, that guys in the end will end up following them. And there actually were a few guys on, on that team that I played with. And I think that actually helped me out because 
they were able to possibly relay a message to the guys who didn't really know what I was about. Um, they could relay that message to the, to the other guys. And I think just, just being myself and, and setting, setting a tone in a, a positive environment for development. It's, it's something that, that I love to do that I feel like I can, I can thrive in and, uh, just love being able to help as many people as possible. And Everett was the perfect environment for that. And now expanding it out a little bit, uh, the Mariners were the team that drafted you in 2017. You played there. Now you've coached there and managed there. Mariners are definitely a farm system on the up and up, as a lot of people know. How would you kind of describe the growth of the system in the close to three years you've been in it? And how would you also describe maybe the organizational philosophy around minor league development? I, I think it's it's unbelievable. I, I think it's one of the best. Obviously, I haven't been in any other orgs, but just just the knowledge base that is within the room. And when I first got there, we were in the, at the big league level. We were really pushing for the playoffs. We had to trade a lot of key prospects to try and make that come to fruition. But uh, right now, we've really been able to stock up on some really high-level, exciting prospects and it's really creating an exciting environment within the walls of our organization and the, the people that are at the top of the ladder and on the coaching staffs and in our front office, they do such an amazing job at creating a growth mindset mentality for, for everybody in the organization. And I think that really feeds to our players and they're always consistently striving for more consistently striving to, to be a part of, the core that helps the Mariners get back to the playoffs. And there's, there's such a strong desire within every single person in, in the organization that wants to make that happen. And I honestly, I couldn't be, be happier to be a part of it because there, there is something special going on right now with the Seattle Mariners and to even just be a small cog in in that machine is, is something that I'm extremely proud of. And I'm really, really excited to see what's going to happen in the near future. And one of those big time prospects, you actually got to manage a little bit last year. Uh, George Kirby was the first round pick by the M's last year, 20th, 20th overall out of Elon made nine appearances for Everett. Uh, eight of them starts didn't walk anybody and struck out 25 guys in 23 innings. I know it's a small sample size, but pretty good not to walk anybody in your pro debut what did you see out of Kirby last year, and um, you know what were you able to bring out of him after you know what was a long college season, uh, make up some innings, and get used to pro ball at the same time? Yeah, I think one word that really describes him well is advanced. Whether it's it's the mental ability and obviously the physical ability. I think I saw a stat he didn't he hadn't walked a guy since the start of May, going back even into his college. Uh, senior college or junior college season, which is unbelievable. And that just shows the level of advancement that, that he's at. And with our, with our pitching staffs, like our, our coaches that are in charge of his development, they, they're already doing such a great job. I saw him working his tail off in in our high performance camp and his body's looking great. He's, he's a great kid that, that strives for more. And, uh, I'm, I'm super excited to see him again in spring training and, and see the, the jump that he's able to make. I know that first half season after a long collegiate year is, can, be, can be grueling on the body regardless if he's on a pitch count or not. 
So I think this off season is going to do him amazing things. And uh, he's going to come back super strong, ready to go in spring training and, and ready to have an incredibly successful year for us. Hmm. And building on that, I, I think the Class A short season level is one of the most interesting in the minors because of the mix you can have. You can have somebody like Kirby who's coming straight out of college and, and teams sent him to low A to um, or you know short season ball uh, to get used to the pro level. But then you also have guys coming up, guys coming off the complexes. Uh, how do you manage that type of mix of player who – you, you might have a Kirby who's very advanced on the other hand and somebody else who's just trying to get to used to basically minor league travel ball on the other. Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. And I think one thing that has helped us do that is not only the data that we can collect, but also the level that we can connect at on as coaches. Um, so it's really trying to meet the player where they're at and creating an environment for them to improve. It, it's not, it's not a cookie cutter program that, that we have. It's if somebody's not as advanced as some, someone else, they're obviously not going to improve the, the most by doing the same thing as the other person. So we do a great job with our analytical department on making sure that guys are focusing on the right thing at the right time. And for everyone, it's going to be different. And so when someone's coming up from a complex, you know, the, the communication from, from Zach Livingston, the manager in the AZL, he'll shoot me a quick call and, and give me an update on, on who's coming and what to look for, what some, what some cues are for him that, that have been working. And so thanks to our, the great communication within the organization, we were able to, to not always start off on at square one. All the other coaches that are in Arizona, if it's someone that's getting called up, they do such a phenomenal job at, at laying the, the foundation and then giving us that information. So it's not, it's no, we don't have to take one step back to, to take two steps forward. We're, we're able to just pick up where they left off and, and continue the, the development for that person. And, and it's, it's a really great system that we have going. And speaking as a short season manager, I'm sure there are a few people listening at home who wonder, you know, what, what is, are your next couple months like? Uh, short season ball doesn't start until June. Obviously, we're right on the precipice here of spring training, and you'll be working with the M's down in Arizona there. But um, you know, what are you going to be taking on in these next few months? This is the first offseason you've ever gone through as a manager. Uh, what, is, what are these next couple months going to be like between now and Northwest League opening day there in June? Yeah, so this this period of time before the season is actually incredibly, incredibly important to me because I'm heading down for for mini camp and then spring training, and that period of time is something that I'm looking forward to taking complete advantage of because at that time it's so it's so unique and and rare where you get every coach in our organization in the same room, and being able to have that many baseball minds surrounded by by you and so much positivity and so much growth that that's an environment that that doesn't get created very often and once you leave for your for your affiliate you're you're kind of on your own with with the the couple guys on your staff um so spring training for me is is something i'm i'm looking forward to incredibly because you get to bounce ideas off of coaches that are in the big leagues coaches that are in triple a coordinators front office people that have seen everything in the game of baseball and 
having the the opportunity uh, the opportunity to expand your knowledge at at that level is is something that is so rare and something that I'm beyond excited about because I feel like it's going to help me more than anything. Hmm. All right, Lewis, we'll end on this one. Uh, it is a big week for baseball in your native province of British Columbia. Uh, Larry Walker announced as a Hall of Famer this week. For those who don't know, Larry Walker's from Maple Ridge, British Columbia, just outside Vancouver. You're from Vancouver. Uh, give us a little insight into, A, what was your reaction when you found out Larry Walker was getting in? But B, how much of a baseball legend is he around those parts? And how much do kids grow up knowing, you know, Larry Walker made it, maybe I can make it too? It's honestly incredibly special. Just as a Canadian, a lot of a lot of guys haven't had necessarily the biggest impact in the big leagues, but he's a guy that that just set the tone for for what could be for Canadian kids. And seeing that he's entering the Hall of Fame, it would have been a complete shame if if he got snubbed another year. And seeing the pure elation on on his face and his family's face when when he received the the amazing phone call it's it's something that that really I don't know if it hits everybody that deep but just being able to share uh being a Canadian and and knowing that how much he had to sacrifice and how much work that he put in to to get to that point is uh it's it's unbelievable it's it's something that as a person you, you can look up to and something to to strive towards and he was a complete legend I mean there's there's baseball fields named after him in the area and He's something that usually he's like a he's like a, a statue. He's he's the person <laughs> that that every that everybody wanted wanted to be because he is the rare person that had an incredible impact on the game of baseball. And uh, and yeah, it's it's just something that especially to to go in with Derek Jeter that was my idol growing up. So I think it was for me, anyways. It was an amazing year for for Hall of Fame inductees. So yeah, incredibly proud to to be Canadian, seeing his name going in there. Yeah, between uh, infielders and, and Canadians, uh, that does sound like a good year in Cooperstown for you. But, uh, Definitely. Lewis Boyd, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, best of luck you know, coming up with spring training and everything that's to come after that with the Aqua Sox. Uh, yeah, best of luck this year, and thanks again for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you. We have a full logo discussion segment with Benjamin Hill uh, today on the show, which means I am a happy camper. And uh, ah, there was a team last year could have been called the happy campers and they weren't. Fun fact. What an Easter egg. Hi, Ben. Hi, Tyler. That was a, a great segue. Yeah, the Rocky Mountain Vibes, one of last year's rebranding teams, uh, were very close to being the aforementioned happy campers. A little piece of trivia for you. But um Hey, you're in North Dakota. We Sam and I are here in the Juan Marichal. Marichal. Juan Marichal. Ma- yeah. Juan Marichal. Shall. Shul. How do you say it again? Juan Marichal. Juan, Juan Marichal. Juan Marichal. Yeah, I'm sorry, Juan, <laughs> and to all Juan fans. Um, yeah, we're in this uh, Juan Marichal conference room. It's very nice. Uh, Sam, I noticed your coffee has four whole milks and four sugars on it. Yes, four whole milks are in that. <laughs> Well, that's what it says on the label. Bottles of milk. Yeah, four whole bottles of milk and a little bit of coffee. Wait, yeah, what, Sam you get likes his four milk. It, no, uh, I just, additions and no, four. No, it's sugars a large coffee. I asked for diabetes. it with milk and sugar, 
and four units of milk come with a large coffee at Dunkin' Donuts. I'm not the one who controls it. But that is true. Oh. Dunkin' Donuts does go a little bit. They're a little overzealous with the with the cream slash milk. And, yeah. the, and the sugar, let's be honest. Sorry, I, just, I get I, it. Your coffee's good, Dunkin' Donuts, but like you could probably you could scale back a little bit. I mean, I used to ask for it with a little bit less, and then I just realized, you know, who am I? Who am I to question it? <laughs> who I know what tastes us? good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can deal with it. And I've never been judged by somebody else for this until just now what? on this podcast. <laughs> so thank you for bringing We it brought up. it to life. I'm now turning the label away so you can't see it. It was just in my line of sight, and I was like, wow, four milk and sugar and four sugars is a lot. But, uh, you know, you keep it light. I just want I'm to point out. Today, you know? I just yeah, want to yeah. point out um, Sam Dykstra, one of my favorite people on the planet. Benjamin Hill, the same. Sam is a, a very kind and decent soul, among the kindest and decent souls that I know, and a Waiting guy who here. a guy who supports small businesses. Uh, but he lives in New York City, and you can't take the mess out of the kid. You still go to Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> for your coffee? Oh yeah, I'm on the rewards program. My, my coffee tomorrow morning is <laughs> is going to be free. Um, listen. I, I live in Brooklyn now. I have my coffee shop down the street uh, and like other ones in my able, neighborhood. There's got to be like an artisanal coffee shop that like makes coffee out of like old compost or something in Brooklyn. Like you can, you don't go there? I mean, it's called El Cafe, so I don't <laughs> ask too many questions about where they get it from. But um, yeah, listen, I have my artisanal places. But when I'm a man on the go, I choose Dunkin' and they are not a sponsor this week. So we don't need to talk about this. But if you work for Dunkin' Donuts, please get in touch. Yeah, Great podcasting <laughs> sponsorship opportunity. The Milb Show, Minor League Baseball Show Before the Show podcast fueled by Dunkin'. Wow. We're talking about AA like and it. got the DD. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, cup of coffee was sitting there, and you went that direction. So, when I'm a man on the go, I choose Duncan, says Sam Dykstra. I'm going to tweet that very shortly. <laughs> Twitter.com. Um, well, let's dive into it. Uh, one of these teams play. Nope, 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 nope. That's a Hartford Yard Goats. They play a. Du- which. I'm going to ask this question, even though it's not part of our discussion today. Duncan Donuts has rebranded itself as Duncan. Are the Hartford Yard Goats going to go to Duncan Park rather than uh, Duncan Donuts that, Park? You know, I, I've, I've looked into that informally. Uh, I think they are open to it, of course, because that's their corporate naming rights sponsor. But that would have to come about via Duncan Donuts themselves saying, hey, here's the money to change the right, massive amounts of, of signage. That is true. That's a good point. That's my understanding. I don't think the team in and of itself with their own budget, and this is just me speculating, would say like, hey, you know what we should do? Change every single sign in the ballpark. Uh, That's a a massive undertaking. But I think maybe down the line we might see that rebrand and maybe not. Even if it still says Dunkin' Donuts and it's now Dunkin', I think the uh, point comes across thoroughly. But we seem to have lost the point. We were talking about (laughs) – Very much so. We certainly Yeah, the 2019-2020 rebranding season, which concluded last week uh, with the unveiling of the Winston-Salem Dash logo. And uh, like I've done for each of the past five off-seasons, I I wrote an article summarizing all the changes, all the new names and – or new logos across the minor league landscape. Uh, In the five years in which I've done this, uh, there were nine this year. Uh, in three of those years, there were nine. One year had 10, and one year had five. So that's 42 teams out of the 160 that have changed their name or logos uh, over just a five-year period, uh, over a quarter of the industry. So, uh, um, that's amazing. 
Yeah, a lot of changes. But we have nine this year, and we can get into it. Um, I mean, where to begin? Tyler, did you have a point in which you wanted to begin? I know this is also a topic uh, near and dear to your heart. No, um, I. Uh, there is such a wide – I feel like there, we go through some off-seasons where the rebrands are – I mean, I know this – where the rebrands are 80%, 90% brandios. Um, this year, there's actually like a pretty decent – um, array. There's obviously a lot of Brandios teams, but Studio Simon with a handful of these redesigns. Uh, Todd Radom, friend of the podcast, one of the the uh, not a rebrand, really a team that's moving. Uh, the former New Orleans Baby Cakes moving to Wichita, becoming the Wind Surge. Um, even a, a local design company, the Variable, did the Winston Salem logo. So there's a good uh differentiation between these identities this year, which is cool. It's not just oh well, they're all obviously Brandios. Yeah, Brandios is still the winner of the nine teams that changed their look in some way, shape, or form. Uh, four were Brandios, so they are still the dominant uh, you know, design firm in minor league baseball. But Tyler, like you mentioned, it is uh, – I think there were four – total entities that had something to do with these uh, 2019-2020s nine rebrands. And um, we currently have a vote going uh, on MILB.com where you can choose your favorite of the nine rebranding teams. Um, you know, Vote for your favorite. Those teams are – oh, well, the URL is uh, MILB.com slash logo dash vote. That's MILB.com slash logo dash vote. Vote and that is, and of a course, dash, you can go to. By the way, not a hyphen, just in case you're a Winston Salem fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, a dash, it's not, not joining a two words; it is merely separating them in a nature in a, a URL. That is an excellent clarification. So these nine teams uh, that changed the Danville Braves uh, just changed their primary logos and unveiled some new hats. Uh, Fort Myers. Uh, formerly the Miracle, changed to the Mighty Muscles. Uh, the Fredericksburg Nationals, you know, or they used to be the Potomac Nationals. They relocated to Fredericksburg, kept the Nationals' name, uh, changed the logos. Uh, Canapolis Cannonballers, previously the Intimidators, they're moving to a new uh, ballpark in 2020, so kind of rebranded with the moves of the new ballpark. Missoula Osprey, under new ownership, they changed their name to the Missoula Paddleheads. The Norwich Sea Unicorns, after... Uh, Roughly a decade in the New York Penn League as the Connecticut Tigers, you know, switched over to Norwich Sea Unicorns. The New Orleans, New Orleans, Baby Cakes are relocating to Wichita. That team is the Wichita Wind Surge. Uh, the Winston-Salem Dash, the aforementioned Winston-Salem Dash, changed their primary logos. And like last year when we talked about the Rocket City Trash Pandas a year ahead of time because they unveiled all their uh, na their name and logo a year ahead of time we have a early 2021 entrant uh Sam please say it the Worcester Red Sox the Worcester Red Sox <laughs> I knew if I said anything Sam would glare at me I'm just going to have to be Ben standby and for the yeah. next two seasons apparently as <laughs> As we do this. Oh, when I visit in 2021, you're coming with me. Oh, Every you, time I try to say the city name, you'll just you'll, you'll just be the, say it for you'll him. be like Ben's interpreter, as though he's in a yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say we're we're gonna make you immersed in Worcester culture. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, man. We're gonna be uh, <laughs> demons on the Candlepin Lane. Yes, there you go. Uh, but they are so we're heading into the last season of the Pawtucket Red Sox. But already before they move to Worcester, Worcester. <laughs> They uh, have unveiled their Woo Sox branding and logo. So those are the nine teams. Um, so while we're asking, you know, we're asking fans to vote. 
uh, on their favorite on MILB.com right now with that uh, URL I gave out earlier. Um, maybe we should share our favorites of this crop of nine different rebrandings. Um, I'll go first, okay? Yeah, yeah good. please do. You have the mic. Yeah, and it's tough because as someone who covers this, you know, and it's, you know, I try to be objective with everything and give every single uh, piece of news the same, you know, care and attention, uh, no matter what my personal feelings may be. But if I'm like switching over to fan mode right now and I look at these nine, and of course I read my own articles as if someone else wrote them, and I'm like, wow, this dude's a really good writer and he knows a lot, and I've learned a lot through my writing and coverage of these uh, rebrandings, and uh, looked at all the different uh, visuals. I think my favorite would be the Canapolis Cannonballers. Mm. And uh, that's a Studio Simon creation. Um, obviously, there was a lot, you know, we've talked about this multiple times on the podcast. But, you know, they used to be the Intimidators. That was a reference to Dale Earnhardt Jr., uh, his nickname, a, uh, and he was a Canapolis native. So there was a lot of uh, kind of anger, sadness. Uh, moving on from the Intimidators name, as we talked about, um, you know, the team did not own that name. It is owned by Earnhardt's widow. And so there were a lot of just problems with moving on with that name in terms of what the team could do with it realistically. So they had reasons for moving on to the name, but they were dealing with a difficult situation with knowing the kind of fan anger and upset with moving on from the Intimidators name. And I just think Cannonballers just – it's it's an immediately striking visual. This kind of baseball-headed stuntman having just been shot out shot out of a cannon. Uh, his bushy mustache bringing to mind Dale Earnhardt Jr. Uh, the and then cannonballers kind of speaking to, of course, the cannonballer logo and also the the kind of. Uh, vaudeville crazy carnival atmosphere that minor league baseball provides that this team hopes to provide at the new ballpark so it tells that story really well and at the same time you know Canapolis was named uh, because of uh, a textile company the Cannon Mills company and uh, so the Cannon in the Cannonballer's name speaks to essentially the origin of the city uh, that it was a textile town and that's kind of what put, literally put it on the map. And so the canon name speaks to the history. Uh, in the logo, you have a little bit of a Dale Earnhardt reference. There's actually the number three. Earnhardt's number three is embedded in the B of Ballers. You know, a little subtle thing. So you still nod to Earnhardt. You nod to the city's history. And you have a very minor league baseball appropriate uh, logo and aesthetic and visual that speaks to the kind of fun you can have at the ballpark. Uh, I think the team with Studio Simon, I think, just did a commendable job under difficult circumstances to really tie it all together. And uh, that's why when I look at these nine teams, that's the one that I personally, as a fan, Ben Hill, would rank number one. I would have said the same. Um, I think it's, uh, I think it's the best one out there and it's just so fun. The color scheme works great. It's so carnival looking. I would have said the same. I would have voted for Canapolis. Uh, I'm Daniel? actually, I'm not usually a contrarian on this stuff, but I'm going to go a different way and say Can the I Missoula guess? pedal. I was going to guess that you were going to go Missoula. Missoula, I think would be my number two. <laughs> yeah. Missoula. It's just a lot of fun. I don't think the Osprey ever really caught on nationally in the same way that this did i know osprey we're at the ballpark there was a lot of connection there for for local folks but paddleheads just really 
feels like a true identity for Montana baseball. Um, I know Paddlehead, you, you hear the name and you think, what is that? But then you instantly see it. And I think this moose is already pretty iconic. I, I really enjoy some of the hats that they came out with. One actually has the outline of the state of Montana with a moose that is fly fishing. Um, the colors work really well. The orange and green is not something we often see in baseball mixed together, in, at least in, in this manner. Um, but it, it screams something that's not just – uh, you know, not to say that Kannapolis is carnival-like. I know that's what they're going for, but it, it's, it's not just attention-grabbing. It's trying to stay true to the region. Not necessarily gets talked about that much on the national scale. Uh, this seems to really plug in well with that, and I like some of the other stuff they've done in terms of turning the bat into an oar. I, I think there's a lot of fun possibilities with this uh, beyond just – Hey, Paddlehead sounds funny, doesn't it? Um, it, it? The look of it, and that's what we're talking about here, just the look. We're not talking names. Uh, the look of it, I think, is really authentic and really stands out to me, certainly more than Osprey ever did. Yeah, I was a little bit sad to see the Osprey name go. I admit that logo, at the very least, needed a, uh, yeah, a was... retouch. Uh, it was uh, certainly looked kind of archaic and not very grab it didn't really grab you as someone who visited Missoula in that was 2017 I wrote a story about this and I became very enamored with the fact that the Osprey were the only professional baseball team to have the animal in which it was named after living in its natural habitat at the ballpark I really liked that actual live Ospreys lived at the ballpark they have a special you know kind of light tower looking poles just beyond the outfield walls with that there that uh, are an Osprey nest they get their food you know they get trout and fish uh, from the river running right behind the ballpark uh, so I did like the very uh, specific connotation there but I agree with Sam uh, I think they did a great job with this rebranding um, you know a paddle is another name for a moose antler there are no you know professional teams that I'm aware of that brand around a moose in any way so it's kind of new territory for the team and one of the cool <coughs> excuse me one of the cool Easter eggs of the logos, if you look at the the moose in the primary lo logo, if you he, one of his eyes is showing. Uh, it's kind of a side profile, but if you look real closely at his eye, uh, it contains a silhouette of two of M Missoula's mountains, Mount Sentinel and Mount Jumbo, and they're depicted in the moose's eye under a moon and a sun. So Aww. just those kind of details, if you're really paying attention, are cool. So I do agree with you that 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 is a great one. Can we go with a? Uh... Um, like, uh, what are the awards called for well. the bad movies? <laughs> what are those? The Razzies. The Razzberries. Can we go for a Razzie? Yeah. Maybe we go for a Razzie after we stop recording and talk about which one is, uh, comes in top on our list. <laughs> like, meh. Um, but, uh, this story is up on the site right now, uh, MILB.com. And again, you can go vote as well as Ben noted. Uh, you can go to MILB.com slash logo dash vote. And uh, that is where you can cast your ballot. I already cast mine. Um, but uh, you can vote for one of the new looks among the nine that have rebranded or redesigned for the 2020 season. Um, kind of crazy that we're already at the end of rebrand season. I feel like it was uh, it came on so fast and furious and it stretched out for a while. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, by the way, everybody's reporting for spring training in two and a half weeks. 2019 hardly knew ye although when it was happening it seemed like we knew ye very well <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> true. That is true. Uh, and, and for me personally and i'm sure this will be something we, where we'll be talking about quite a lot in the coming months is you know it's not a hard and fast transition but once we get past this 
portion of the offseason, then it really does become, uh, you know, minor league promo schedule unveiling season. We've seen some odds and ends, you know, teams not releasing full schedules, maybe a couple highlights. Um, but it was actually just right before I came up to this room, the Juan Marischal room, uh, that I saw the Carolina Mudcats, you know, had released their full promo schedule, and that was one of the first I'd seen. So, um, you know, just to give a little preview of things we'll be talking about in the future, um, starting roughly now and throughout the month of February into the first couple weeks of March, there will be a deluge of uh, specific, you know, theme nights and giveaways and that kind of thing uh, to sink our teeth into uh, metaphorically. It is all good stuff. It is up on the site right now at MILB.com. And, of course, uh, Ben's stuff is all up uh, at MILB.com slash Ben's Biz. And uh, some, this is a fun topic, man. We'll, uh, I'm sure, be able to debate endlessly once we get off and we give our Razzie Awards. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to think about that that next phase. Uh, and, you know, hit us up on Twitter. Email us. Talk to us. We, we like this topic, obviously, and we've talked a lot about it. If you're a regular listener, you can go back and see us talking uh, each of these changes basically, you know, in-depth as separate standalone segments. So uh, farewell to the rebrand, and uh, we'll be back again soon. Thanks, man. Thank you, Tyler, and thank you, Sam. Enjoy that cream and sugar and a little bit of coffee. <laughs> segment on this week's episode of the show big thanks to lewis boyd and benjamin hill for joining us and that's it goodbye no <laughs> after the so i should just wrap from now on see you later yeah. we're done the peppy uh, opening that we had that was <laughs> obviously not rehearsed at all this is just how we're gonna go up <laughs> oh man i will take uh, my Dunkin co- coffee and leave now sir yeah, thank you yeah exactly exactly uh by the way i noticed that uh though they made this whole huge deal about rebranding into just duncan their Twitter handle is still at Dunkin' Donuts. So you're not fooling anybody here, Dunkin' Donuts. Although, if you want to send us a bunch of free coffee, eh, you can fool us. I'm just saying, cup of coffee <laughs> is sitting there. The sponsorship <laughs> possibilities are endless. They are not a sponsor. I feel like you have that to say that. That is true. That is true. Cup of coffee. Yeah. Man, that's, goodness gracious, that's perfect. Yeah. Um, I think I feel like you have to say that now. Anytime you mention a company, like they are not a sponsor, yeah, so we're, we're not, not getting, getting anything from this, this. But we are open to possibilities. <laughs> so anyway, that's it. You, Sam Dykstra. I'm Tyler Maude. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week.